Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Tom Pickup, and in this episode, we will finally be going behind the camera to look at the wonderful world and work of Ken Adam. The legendary production designer worked on seven James Bond films from the very start, Dot to Know, all the way through to Moonraker. Now, there are various places you can find the Really WSM podcast to listen in and follow, including iTunes and Spotify, and our website with our Pod Dojo network. Thank you for sharing our episodes and rating and recommending us keep up the good work listeners thank you we are of course also on social media facebook twitter and instagram and tonight i'm going to give a shout out to a prominent bond fan on twitter michael pearson another fellow chap from the northwest of england so thank you michael for your support with us tonight for the first time in what seems like ages we we have no guests with us we're just regular contributors Chris Goldie, Math Pickup, and John Gell. John Gell. <laughs> John Gell. John Gell. John Gell. John Glenn. John Glenn, yeah. <laughs> John is the, Action. the, the fourth person here. Yeah. Action. Yeah. Anyway, good evening, gents. Good, good evening, evening, Tom. So, yes, Ken Adam. Since the very beginning, we've, we've been aiming to do a Ken Adam tribute episode, and I know... Um, Chris in particular is a, is a big fan and a big champion for doing this. And it's never really, we've never really had the chance or the right time to do it. So I say that, but by the time you hear this, it'll have been recorded months ago. So who knows when this will be coming out. But it is finally lovely to to, to get to the, the great man well over a year on into uh, our history as a, as a podcast. And then, you know, I've put, put a joke. It'll probably be two years by the time this is released, but I've already sort of done that joke <laughs> Anyway, the man, Ken Adam, is a legend of the James Bond franchise and his sets are an inspiration to everyone in the industry with the most recent film, No Time to Die, featuring clear tributes, I think, from production designer Mark Tildesley. (laughs) 
Huge Bond fan Chris Eels, better known as The Man with the Red Trousers or 007 Bookshelf, tells us about his extraordinary encounter with Ken Adam. So I had just graduated, and after finishing up a summer job, I needed some work while finding what my parents would call a proper permanent job. My uncle, who was a builder, foreman, was working on a house extension not far from where I was living at the time. He asked if I wanted to come and help dig out the foundation holes and knock down some walls at this house in Putney. Needing some cash quick, I said yes, and so, for a couple of weeks in October, helped out at this very nice house near the river. Once the land was prepped, I dug out several trenches for the foundations in the garden, and then started removing an upstairs conservatory and knocking out the walls of the bathroom. While walking through the house each day, I had noticed that there was a lot of very nice designer furniture, shelves full of graphic art books and framed sketches on the walls, but didn't think anything of it. One morning, during a break, my uncle came out and said the owner of the house had popped by and that I should come and say hello. Wanting to be polite and friendly, I put down my Greg's pasty and a cup of tea and came into the kitchen. I got the surprise of my life when the owner emerged from behind the fridge door and I saw it was Ken Adam. He held out his hand and in a raspy, thick European voice said, How do you do? I shook his hand and may have mumbled hello in reply. But only after he had said a few words to my uncle and walked away did I pull myself together. I explained to my uncle who this man was, this legend, and he said, Ah, that's why you look so much like a starstruck fool. He told me to go after Ken and talk to him, but as I walked into the hallway, the front door slammed shut, and he was gone. And that is the story of how I met Ken Adam and dug a hole in his garden. John, I believe, is going to do a lovely quiz for us. And it's felt like an age, hasn't it? Yeah. Since the last quiz. Yeah. It's always good to have. And, and I've got to be honest, like, I've, I've struggled to think of what to do with this. So I'm going to do something a bit different. <laughs> it's going to be a bit of a round robin where the, I went on Architectural Digest's top 10 James Bond sets. Six of them were Ken Adam sets. Just for reference, because this is a bit of it. The other sets that got in was one from Skyfall that I was like, okay, fair enough. Which um, one? I cannot yeah, remember off the top of my head, but I was a bit like, I'm not, sh- not, not entirely sure about that. The Monsoon Palace in Octopussy. Mm. Elliot Carver's building with his big face on <laughs> in Tomorrow Never Dies. And I am telling you these for reference because <laughs> what I'll say is that these answers are not necessarily the answers that you will think. <laughs> And the yeah. final one that got in was the Ice Palace of Die Another Day. Whoa! <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, so what Don't I'm going to do is, is, is that we go around. So, like one person has one choice and answer. Next person has another one. You go around three times and see how many points you get. But obviously, there's an advantage of whoever goes first. What I'm going to do is a very quick question. Uh, whoever answers it first will go first, and then the second one, whoever answers that, will go second. The buzzer to get yourself in for this is the Hugo Drax quote first there was a dream now a reality or whatever it is I don't know why that came out Lancashire when I said that a reality (laughs) (laughs) so okay what is the second film that does not feature Ken Adam in the James Bond series Uh, I can't remember what the thing (laughs) dream 
Buzzword. First it was a dream. Yeah, that one. Now, yeah. now it is a reality. Is it? Yes. Is that right? I think that's right. Go on, what's the answer, Tom? <laughs> I think it must be your favourite Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It is Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Mm. So Tom will go first in the quiz. Okay, so Chris, Math, what is the third film that doesn't include Ken Adam? First, it was a dream. Now, where are Live and Let Die? Live and Let Die is correct. So, Tom, Math, Chris. So, you're all basically, you can have a guess at what you think one of the six sets in Architectural Digest top 10 James Bond sets were. I will tell you if it's right or not, and then it goes on to the next person. You can get a guess. You're around three times, so you'll all have three goes to get as many points as you can. So, Tom, going first, what Ken Adams set do you think got in the top 10? Babyishly, I will start with the the inner of the volcano in Young and the Twice. You've, you've got to go for it every time. I mean, that's one point for Tom. Yeah, that's in there. Me? Math. Yeah. Yes, go for it. Fort Knox in Goldfinger. Correct. That's a point for Math. Chris? I think it's called the Tarantula Room uh, in Doctor No, where it has the, the skylight with the, where it looks like a spider's. Brilliant set. One of Kedam's favourite, but not correct, good, unfortunately. Good. <laughs> yeah. Back to Tom. So it's one one zero. I suppose I'll have to steal it then. Maybe the Doctor Knows Laboratory. Is correct. Yes. Mm. Doctor Knows. Sorry, Chris. I, I, prefer, <laughs> I prefer the Crab Key Tarantula yeah, set. Yeah. I've got to be honest. Yeah. So it's 2 1. It's dying room. Go for it. The Spy Love Me Shark Pit. I'll give you that, yes, because it's the whole Laparus. Oh, right. Oh, uh, oh, no, no, that's not the... No, that's Atlantis, so no, don't give me that. Well, I've kind of just given an answer away. Instead, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is Atlantis not in the top? No, absolutely disgrace. Oh, wow. Go on, Chris. The launch pad from uh, Moonraker, the one that's a bit like a triangle with loads of screens that go up. I can't remember what it was. Again, absolutely should be in there. But it's, oh, but it's how, how that is not in an Elliot Carver's face on a building here. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, did, right he, left did he do it? Did Ken Adam do Moonraker? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was his final yeah. film. Right, there, yeah. Yeah. So one more round each. Tom's winning 2 1 0. That was it. Yeah. I've got another guess now. Yeah, there's two answers uh, you can still get. Uh, let's think. It's probably the laser room in Goldfinger, maybe. No. <laughs> oh. Great, uh, great answer. I mean, it'd be in mine again, but but it's not. So, Matthew you can draw level. <sighs> I'm trying to think a different because whether they've split it up into different films and not had you know Thunderball MI6 briefing room. <sighs> Surely, no. <laughs> oh, how is not? I'll never know. But no, <laughs> Chris, can you get can you get yourself a point? What's he called? The have we had this one? In the spy loved me, where the submarines are kept. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Lapara <laughs> chicken. Yeah. That, yeah. Lepara, right, okay. Yeah. We had. It was so uh, innocently said. Know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, go on. That's yes, right. that's the point. Yeah, go for it, mate. Yeah, you got a point. So it's two one one. Tom wins. So the four you got was you got Doctor No's laboratory, you got Fort Knox, the volcano, and Laparis. The two the other two that got in Architectural Digest was the Kentucky Stud Farm from Goldfinger with the uh, which to be fair if you think about it with the rotating pool table yeah yeah and, uh, and the little oh, right. yeah. and, you know yeah absolutely oh, outstanding I bet that time 
and the other one was Willard White's Penthouse, mm. which if you think oh, is yeah. outstanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, be so yeah. good. I mean, it, just toilet. just talking about the ones that we missed out. You know that this conversation is going to be just unbelievable, isn't it? It just sparks your imagination, doesn't it? Yeah. It takes you back to the classic films and. This is space station in Moonrise. Oh, no. Yeah, no. Like, just oh, that itself. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to listen to Flight into Space now at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is that the whole experience. Will, obviously, Moonraker will we'll have to wait till the end, but that experience of the score and the production design mm. is winning, isn't it? So, yes, Klaus Adam was born <laughs> in 1931. Born in Berlin. So, he, he is German to an upper middle class secular Jewish family. And his father was awarded the Iron Cross for his service in World War One. His father actually owned a well-known high fashion clothing and sporting goods store called S. Adam. And the family lived in a pretty much almost idyllic, privileged existence until the Nazis came into power. And obviously we've seen a lot of this through a lot of uh, key figures that, that had to flee in uh, this period and then forged incredible careers in America and in England. But this convinced his parents to send him and his brother, I think, first, because uh, this, this is early on, this is in the early 30s, to a boarding school in Edinburgh. And his parents then came some years later fleeing as refugees. So, again, the irony that they they were incredibly rich in Germany and then were sort of forced to be just like everybody else and, and worse. And, of course, being German as well, I bet that would have been difficult coming to England and not particularly popular at the time. When he got here, Ken changed his name. He anglicised it, I suppose, to Kenneth, uh, and eventually Ken. You don't get many Kens these days, do you? <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm dying for someone to introduce me to their baby Ken. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bring it back. Bring back A twin Ken. Nigel. <laughs> Nigel Ken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yes, Ken Adam left uh, this boarding school in Edinburgh to rejoin his parents in London and continued his education at St. Paul's School in London. Repetition of London. I'll edit that out. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it was here, though, basically in London that he became interested in cinema and he became an apprentice, I believe, as an architect. But then World War II finally happened. What an unbelievable life he'd had so far when he's in his teenage years. He was working eventually on designs for air raid shelters and... <laughs> illustrated books on air raid protection and gas masks. He then joined the Pioneer Corps, which was a support unit of the British Army, and began to design bomb shelters. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable, isn't it? And then he joined the RAF. I mean, this is like it's like John Glenn casually said, oh, yeah, yeah, I was in the RAF, didn't he? You know, just mm-hmm. these guys. And he was a flight lieutenant and, served, and then served in World War II against his native Germany because, of course... And I think he was one of only three Germans yeah. in the British RAF, and one of them was his brother. So it's just wow. this is before he's even you know started work as a production designer. <laughs> incredible. So that is yeah. I mean that's the that's the incredible story. I don't know. We we well versed in any of that, Chris. I don't know. I knew about him being like one of the few non-British people to be in the RAF. But what a life! What a lifetime before you, a career, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the not to be all like the good old days or anything like that, but to to, to have a, a, what you know to have the beginning of your life to be so rich and so full with various things, and obviously war isn't 
something that is great but to have so much experience and then obviously to bring that to your work I think that says I don't know it says a lot I think uh, you know you, there's, there's a, with these kind of people there's a richness to their work you know there's, there's a depth to it and I think that's because you've lived a life before you've started you know and that's all feeds into the, your creativity uh, but no he's an extraordinary character and 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 one of the few people I would label as as, as a genius. Math will remember Mr. Joseph, who was our mm. in sixth form, he was our history teacher, and he, you know, he but we didn't didn't really learn anything about what we were doing exams on, but he <laughs> taught us an awful lot of incredible stories and history about other things. He was obsessed with chartism, but that's another story. Stephen Jones will back me up on that. Anyway, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Joseph, I, he always stood with me. I uh, always remember it that he said, I can't remember. Someone was grumbling about having to see the grandparents, and he said, "Don't ever." have a go at your grandparents. You know, they've seen more life than we will ever see. Mm. And that's mm. definitely the truth with our grandparents. And mm. this generation is the same, you know, Ken Adam. I think he's he died not that long ago. He was 95. Mm. I mean, he's a, you know, mm. he's lived an amazing life, an amazing age, but he's seen more life in his teenage years than we'll probably ever see. So <laughs> yeah. it's just... Yeah. But I think like that, that background of, of being you know, designing air raid shelters and bomb shelters, things like that, that real world, you know, that, 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 that's something that's functional, but then to then, so you would, th- you would assume someone who had that, would be very kind of meat and potatoes, you know, when he did build sets, it was, yeah, very, yeah. but he's not, he's, he's the other way. Yeah. And I love that about him. He's, he's very flamboyant. There's no boring sets with, with Ken Adam, mm. you know, he's not, he, he's not form over function, you know, he's just like, let's just go. <laughs> yeah. I remember reading in his obituary how he was obsessed with shapes from a very young age. He never wanted anything to just be straight edged. He was always trying to make curves and he, well, that, that modernist approach as well. It's, uh, it's phenomenal, isn't it? <laughs> you know, to look mm. at. Mm. Yeah. Eventually, yeah, he started working in the film industry and he was a draftsman. I keep seeing this word. I'd never heard of it until we started looking at the Bond, you know, the Bond days because Peter Lamont was his draftsman. So I think it's like it's basically, a, what do you call it, an apprentice to the master uh, when you're learning the job as a production designer and an art director, really. It's, it's sort of all lumped together then. Yeah, he did, he did a couple of Oscar winners before he'd even started Bond around the world in 80 days and Ben-Hur. He was like a draftsman on that. So that what an incredible education he was getting in the film industry oh. before we've even started his his role as production designer. I think his first his first major film that he was uh, you know the number one man on was uh, Doctor Strangelove, which of course is the Stanley Kubrick film mm. in black and white. And Steven Spielberg called it the best set that's ever been designed. And it's like that famous one, isn't it? Which yeah. it's like that circular light above the circular table. And what and what a weird. You know what a weird film to sort of associate a, a set with, but that's—it's almost a bit like that slightly silly thing you get with with Spectre, isn't it? It's—it's it's like the that sinister background that's that's sort of remembered by the set, and we'll get on to the Thunderball set, which is completely different for the mm. Spectre agents. But it—I don't know—it sets the scene. Have you have you seen have you seen Doctor Strangelove, John? I have. It was a long time ago, but I have seen it. Yeah. It, oh, how do I say this? It's it's one of those films that I appreciate, but I wouldn't say it's hilarious like so many people <laughs> seem to think. But 
I have a very neat crying laughter. No, no. yeah, I'm certainly not crying with laughter. When you think, when you think of Doctor Strange, love, you think of "Please Don't Ride the Bomb," which obviously he designed the bombs and all the right. It was his idea, and then you think yeah. of the car fight in a war room, and obviously that's the big set. And that's the thing with Ken Adam, isn't it? Is is that when we look at many of his films tonight, is that the things you remember about those films are his stamp on them. That is just. That is just some achievement, isn't it, really? I mean, how often does that happen these days? I don't oh, no. I mean, maybe it does a little bit. It's partly because, I, I don't know, I, I just think it's remarkable, we've said it before, that all these geniuses somehow got involved with the Bonds mm, on day absolutely. one. It's so and if, if you took out one of them, if you took away John Barry, if you took mm. away Terence Young, if you took away Sean Connery, Cubby, the list got Peter Hunt, you know, the list goes on, mm, doesn't it? Yeah. They're all there from day one, which is absolutely remarkable. And then succession planning, because you've got like oh. you've got Peter Hunt to John Glenn, you've got Ken Adam yeah. to to uh, Peter Lamont. You know, it, it, yeah. it's it's brilliant. Yeah, it's no wonder that Peter Lamont is also one of the, the greats, isn't he? Mm. He, he? He certainly was. If you're learning th- with him for all that all that time, and he he did a heck of a lot. I didn't realize even early on, he did loads of the underwater stuff for Thunderball, like lighting the sets and getting all that right. Which <laughs> they're sort of they seem like slightly unglamorous jobs, don't they, at the time? But when you're staging shots like that that have never been done before in film, they're, they're pioneers as well as craftsmen. I think mm. it just you just don't hear that. How many how many particularly filmmakers nowadays who end up becoming a, a big success had gone through that apprenticeship? It's not really a thing. It's like the director just just aimed to be a director so ended up directing the yeah. first film you, there's no like he worked you know they worked mm. this level was was an editor and it, it, there's it just yeah. seems that isn't a thing anymore which is which is a bit of a shame because you know being a cameraman and then maybe you know directing or you know working on sets and you know that kind of thing it's just um, everyone just sort of Particularly in, in, in directing, because they're obviously the, the big kind of roles. You don't get that natural progression that you used to, which is which is well, odd. Marvel, Marvel no. have done this thing, haven't they, where they, they only let people direct it who've never directed a what, 100 million mm. film before or something. So that's basically ruling out anyone who's working the way up. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's had one cool indie film that's the darlings have loved, and then, all oh, right, that's the kind of person we want. I mean, it, you know, it works for... For that that thing doesn't seem, and yet they all end up almost the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, um, they're not directing the film, are they? Obviously, as much as I, I think things that you know things have changed. And um, sorry, most extraordinary fireworks just uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was an attack. No. There's so much emphasis these days on on directors. Directors are more like revered than ever, right? and also directors of photography, which is a big one. Whereas it seems more in the in the kind of the bond when the Bond production, that it was such a team effort. Like, you wouldn't, you know, it wasn't all hinging on the director of photography or, or whatever. You had all these different elements, as you mentioned, Tom and, and John, like, that just come together and you got all these people at the top of the game, but no, no one's, like, some huge ego that's dictating the rest of it. There's very few films that production design gets mentioned on, aren't there? I mean, it'd be more things like Alien or sort of when you're creating new worlds and... Mm. And yet, you'd, never, you'd never get someone, oh, I love those sets now, would you? Is it's such a massive part of films, though, particularly, you know, it world is, yeah. building, particularly, you know, a bigger budget, not necessarily always a bigger budget, but if you're trying to 
you know, create a world. And even even if it's, you know, a, a small room or house, but which plays a pivotal part in, in a film or something, it's absolutely, it's key. But yeah, you never you never really particularly hear about it. May I, I wonder if you know the move towards CGI and green yeah. screen and um, that 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 will be a big thing. But still, there are still massive practical you know sets yeah. being mm. constructed for for films. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, long may that continue. Absolutely, the likes of Ken Adam though he designs in his head. Doesn't yeah, he? so it, there may be more computer people do that now, aren't they, and design it. On the computer and possibly yeah. do it that way, but well, there's no. Um, I, I suppose the difference is that now everything everything's kind of most film sets are very grounded. There's no kind of you don't go and watch something and, and the set is stylized. I can't remember the last. I, I suppose that the only real fil- filmmaker I feel that does that is maybe Wes Anderson. He makes a big thing. Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah. You know the way he shoots it and the set is very much part of it. And he obviously uses physical sets, doesn't he? And he does like walls that move and the camera moves, all that kind of thing. But you know, like a prime example is like the 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 opening in the Spy Loved Me with Google, The Office. Yeah, and it's just it's just this chair, kind of sat you know in on on this bare wall, and 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 the fact that it's this these these choices, stylistic choices of it's a wall. The desk is kind of floating at the front, and then there's just a chair in the background. It's so striking and original. You just don't really see that anymore and you don't have to be kind of you don't have to do build volcanoes you know and and massive sets all the time but i just think it's um i just that you just don't see that anything quite as as stylish as or as visionary as as he did do you think that sort of almost goes in your head that that's what we think of soviet russia this is what we think the kremlin looks like inside because of things like that after of course you had this relationship with working with stanley kubrick but he turned down 2001, A Space Odyssey. Do you, does anyone know why? Apparently. Was it about something about n- not wanting to be typecast or something like that? No. No, he, apparently he, he, he found out that Kubrick had been working with NASA sort of to look into how to make it all uh, for about a year before he started shooting the film. So he thought... Oh well, he's already going to have his own ideas in his head, and he's now at a disadvantage with developing everything because I know the film isn't sort of obsessed with looking ultra real- realistic, but everything in it is fairly realistic mm-hmm. in terms of the design of of the set. But I'm not sure who did the sets, but they're pretty incredible in that, aren't they? But yeah. everyone was great at those days, anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But before we go on to uh, the Bond films, just some of the. Other films that he that he did, which particularly famous, we mentioned it with um, David uh, Licensed to Queer in the Diamonds episode. He did the Trials of Oscar Wilde, and I don't know whether David had yet seen it because it's just it's so unavailable. But it's a, a Cubby Broccoli, Harry Saltzman, isn't it? Early production, mm-hmm. you know, just so underrated. Uh, and I'd, I think some of the other Bond alumni are involved in it as well. Um, so he did that, and then he did the Ipcris file, which of course was produced by Cubby. I think I said Ipcris, didn't I? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, it is Ipcris. I think I said... Ipcris. Like Stanley Ipcris. <laughs> Great production design of that, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he was sort of involved that way in because he'd been working with Cubby on those two films. But he also other films that he did, I think he got nominated for Oscars for all of these. There's Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I've not seen that version, but Sleuth. I've seen the remake. I haven't seen the... The original Michael Caine 
Yeah. <laughs> is it very, very you, Chris? It's it's brilliant. The the original's brilliant. I quite the sequel, the sequel, the the remake, yeah. the Kenneth reimagining, Brown, remake, reimagining is is okay. Is okay. I, I quite liked it, but the original just has that. It has the well. There's a reason they remade it. It's because it's it's a, it's a great film. Yeah, it seemed quite like a play. Is it was it ever a play? I don't. I think it was originally a play. Yes, and it, and it's just you've got Laurence Olivier and uh, Michael Caine are just on fire, and yeah. the dialogue and just it's just it's just brilliant. Well worth seeing. I, slightly fallen by the wayside. You don't hear it mentioned an awful lot at the moment. No, maybe by it's a shame because the, the, the script is is brilliant. Yeah. I, mean, I think it was Harold Pinter. Did he adapt it for the, the remake for, for Kenneth Branagh? Yeah. Sorry, Harold, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such theatre names. Love it. One of the last films he did, and he got Oscar nominated for it, Adam's Family Values. Yeah. Yeah? Just think about that. You know, a sequel to some... Ken children's... Adam's Family Values. <laughs> <laughs> Too many Adams going on at the moment, yeah. Lorenzo, I know Lorenzo Grange is a massive fan of, of the Adams family. And he was, I think he was watching them all, uh, you know, around Halloween, but he, he loves them. So there's another Bond connection. And he got an Oscar for The Madness of King George for his work on that. Another film that's been completely forgotten. I, at the time, it was massive. And Nigel uh, Hawthorne got Oscar nominated and it was all talked mm. about as one of the great performances. And he died, didn't he, quite young. And I've not heard anyone mention it in. 15 years. I, I have seen, I saw it about five years ago. It was excellent. It doesn't seem to sort of get mentioned along with the great British films at all, mm. does it? No, it was like you say at the time, it was a big, it was a big yeah. thing. It like won loads of awards. And it was, is it Nicholas Haytner's, was it his first film? And obviously coming from the theatre, it was, you know, it was a big thing. Here we go again, yeah. So um, sets. Yeah. Sets on show, yeah. Um, but yeah, it doesn't really. There is that whole period of, of, I suppose, like 90s British films that have kind of been forgotten. Yeah. Wild. Mrs. Brown. Mm. Class, yeah. class films, yeah. John, have you have you seen uh, The Madness of King George? I, I haven't, no. But I, I feel like I need to uh, I need to watch it on your recommendation now, Thomas. I mean, it's, it's quite a, a basic, you know, there's not an awful lot to it in terms of the plot. Yeah, but he's... But it's just good acting. It's nice to see it. But I'm such a 90s fanboy. That's the thing is, is that <laughs> I don't know what it is about 90s films, but it's the look of them as well. Like There's just nothing better than watching a 90s yeah. film, especially I think 93 to 95 is that era. It's, oh. when, it's the Tom, Tom Cruise floppy hair era. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> and the baggy beige pants era. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. I just, and I'm quite sure that the madness of King George is probably set not in the '90s, by the sounds of it. But uh, no, it isn't. No, no. But, but, but it was, still, I think it was '93 to '95. Yeah, I'm quite no. sure I'd enjoy it, so I'll give it yeah, a watch. Yeah. <laughs> the other film he won an Oscar for was very similar in terms of an old royal design, and you know, old worldly, of course, was Barry Lyndon, which was teamed up with. Kubrick again, and I only just I only saw that quite recently. It's not <laughs> it's not something that you'd put on on a Sunday afternoon with the ki- the kids or anything like that. But it's it's quite long and not an awful lot happens. But boy, does it look absolutely gorgeous, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It's so well shot, so well lit, really well directed. Again, no no one really mentions the performances, but they were they were decent. 
But yeah, it's just a very odd film that wouldn't get made now, would it? No, I, <laughs> I think it's because no one would, no one would. Barry, oh Barry, <laughs> yeah, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think because it's it's such an art, artistic, you know, approach to it. I think the story itself, you know, about this sort of you know a gambler and you know the sort of the life and times of this sort of quite sad figure isn't, like you say, the most gripping story. <laughs> but it's it's the, the fact it's directed by Kubrick. The fact it's you know the the sets, the way it's shot the actors in it, you know, everything about it elevates it. The story itself is quite, you know, and, 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 and I find it almost like, I suppose, while people like, like Terrence Malick, I find it quite hypnotic. Yeah. It's so little it's easy movement. to watch, isn't it? It's, it's you lovely sort of, pace and everything. Yeah, you can't, you're absolutely drawn into it. But, I, but in the same respect, I know that <laughs> people would hate it. <laughs> you know, I understand people are like, what is this? It's so boring. Nothing happens. <laughs> and, you know, but, and, and. It was near the end. I mean, he's a kid, you know. Yeah, the kid. Oh, yeah. It's really annoying. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I personally love it. It's one of my favorite Cubics, but I completely understand why people would be just bored to tears. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was completely forgotten until fairly recently, but now it is. It, getting yeah, quite I think there's a lot of the sort of you know the the, the Wes Andersons, you know, and your your, your Paul Thomas, all the Andersons, Paul <laughs> Thomas, <Anderson, laughs> like Andersons. big fans, and you know, kind of bigged I, I, it up recently. And even Paul W S. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Anderson, yeah. you beat me to it, man. Yeah. Well done. Well, <laughs> Sets on Event uh, Horizon, my goodness me. <laughs> Outstanding production design. John, have you have you seen this? Is, you see, this is this might be the only chance to discuss Barry Lyndon. So you really need to be doing it now. Um, <laughs> I have a bit of a love hate thing with Kubrick. Right, how do I just say this? I find them all boring. <laughs> I've got to be honest. Like, hmm. I, I I can imagine that if I look deeper into things, I would think they're brilliant. And uh, they're technically brilliantly made, but I've seen The Shining. I think it's I think it's dull. I've seen uh, <laughs> I've seen a Clockwork Orange. I think it's rancid, and <laughs> I can see why certain people would like it. I, I'm I am not an I am not an author. I am not. I I, I have never like studied cinema. You look at my film collection, it is very lowbrow. What's going to entertain me for two hours? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's always the answer. I've probably got yeah. so many Jim Carrey films, it's untrue. You know, that's 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 kind of more at my level. So I am not the best person to start talking about Barry Lyndon, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you have to, have, to, have to remember, one of Terrence Malick's favourite films is Zoolander. Yes. So, and Kubrick was uh, white men can't jump. So you know, it's, what a film! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Woody Harrelson's been going for so long. I don't understand I why he's in like seventy yeah. or something. Unbelievable, isn't it? Really, with Kubrick. While we're on it, I, th- I, c- I mean, I have to say, I think probably three of his films are in my greatest films ever made. I really do think that. I think uh, Clockwork Orange, John. I'm sorry. I think it's absolutely outstanding. I think it's incredibly hypnotic, isn't it? I think the word is for that. And uh, The Shining, I think, is possibly one of the... Well, yeah, it is one of the best horror films, I think. 
opinion. It's all opinion. And then, yeah, 2001 is just yeah. absolutely... I can't, I, I, I can't understand why people would struggle with that, but that opening, I don't know how you couldn't be absolutely mm. terrified and drawn into that, the music and... I mean, okay, it's quite funny now, the sort of fake apes and everything, but it's just so weird. That fake, because he... he, weird. he, he well, no, he didn't get an Oscar because they, they thought they were they thought they were oh, real. Oh yes, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, dear me, I, I, I then eyes wide shut, very good. But anyway, we digress. We digress. But he won an Oscar for Barry Lyndon. That's the whole mm-hmm. point. That's the whole point of the conversation. If you're enjoying Really 007, why not follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? Look us up at Really 007 Pod. So Doctor No was certainly had one of those things. You know, uh, <laughs> I always go go hard on the Monty Norman score, but yeah. So Adam was there from the very beginning and hired for the first Bond film, Doctor No. His instantly recognisable designs were all made at Pinewood, Pinewood Studios, and we've mentioned some of these already. I mean, Doctor No's base, it, there's so much to it, isn't there? Even it's like a lovely hotel rooms that which they yeah. <laughs> put in, aren't they? You've got the the, the ventilation duct, which they're mm-hmm. passing through. The lift, the copper lift is fabulous, isn't it? His dining room, I thought yeah. that could be in the top the top fuse. That's so iconic. I don't know whether that had been done before. Things like having a one set, one wall is actually water with, mm-hmm. you know, all the fish there, but who knows? Obviously, that, that came into greater effect in Spire Love Me, but... Yes, you've got that. Basically, so in, in terms of the history to it, he, his budget for the entire film was £14,500. And that doesn't sound much, but the budget was a million for the whole thing. So it's still not it's not a great chunk, is it, to, to work with? The producers were so impressed with his job, they gave him another £6,000 out of their own finances. And I think he was offered like a, a cut of the the profits, you know, one of these sort of deals, but he turned it down because, of course, that you didn't know, did you, that mm. those days. But the first time we see a Ken Adam set is the first time we see Bond in the Les Ambassadors Club, effectively, when Bond is introduced at the at the casino table. And that's, you just assume it's a real casino, mm. don't you, really? All these iconic images of Bond, including that very first one, he's had a hand in a lot of them. It's no mean feat. The laboratory, though, that was absolutely enormous, 18,000 feet, uh, one of the sound stages at Pinewood. And it was so complicated that it sort of had to work effectively. So they got like lab technicians on and IBM were involved. And the guy was just going crazy. That's, I think he blew all the budget on that. So then everything else came from uh, the contingency fund, including, Chris, the, the famous spider room, the tarantula room hmm. set, which is so basic. But it's the way it's lit, isn't it, as well? Yeah. It's so striking, and, and also the fact that it's you kind of... It, it's that that thing that whenever I think of Ken Adams, I think of huge, like, the ceiling is just, you know, miles away. It's just, like, long lines, and, and then, like, a bit one big shape, like John was saying, like, a circle somewhere, or a triangle here, and then, you know, it's just... And to, to, to think, like, you watch it now... And it's so the production, the, the film itself is is unbelievably fresh. Doesn't feel like it's aged. Mm. You know, yeah. it could be like, oh, this is just this was shot. You know, you know, it's just a period film that, that that's that, that's been made out. The the production, just yeah. the way it moves. You know, that that just everything about it is just feels so 
well, modern, as, as, you know, as it is now. And I think those sets add so much to it because I was saying that you have, like in all all his his films, you have this sort of you know quite mundane sets, but then there's always a little twist to it just to make it a bit more interesting, just to make it more kind of visually striking. And then he'll go to some banana set <laughs> where it's just like he's just you know gone crazy, but it fits because the films have always tried to be modern, always tried to be you know um, taking whether it's culturally or, you know, like say, you know, the, the fact that they, they would use kind of modern, you know, the most cutting cutting edge kind of materials to build sets and to use things. And you see that through through all the films. It's like, what is at the cutting edge? Is it stunts? Is it the, the way it's shot? Is it the way, you know, anything technical, they were always looking for those things. And that's what's always kept them fresh. But I think for, for me, watching Dr. No, those sets are just... I don't know what it would would have been like to watch that the first time at the cinema. It would have just like blown your mind. So Goldfinger gets the sort of credit as being the first, I, I think in people's minds, the first big Bond film, you know, the big budget, the big sets and everything. And I think a lot of that is because From Russia With Love is quite a bit more low key. And I'm not saying there aren't mm-hmm. some lovely sets, you know, in that, which, you know, there the really are with the, the sort of the catacombs or whatever, and then the lovely chess room and, and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But they're a bit more sort of, realistic and everything whereas well so real yeah so whereas dr no i think is mo- it's so iconic in in the, you know yeah. that the tarantula room and then his sort of dining area and every, and everything and just the costume design involved with all that as well and then obviously the kind of laboratory type thing i mean it's so iconic and so i mean the people people watching that must have thought this is a this is a big deal what i'm watching here now like this is that this is like top top level cinema, and mm-hmm. and like you say, if yeah, so we didn't have John Barry on you know scoring that film, which which is noticeable, yeah. But I, you know, I think Ken Adam doing that first one is such a key thing, you know, because it, it just sort of it sets that the majesty of Bond and you know the the scope and the scale. That film in general is just going up every day for me, but but a big part of it is those sets. Yeah, 100%. I mean, for the first film to put a, a villain's lair like that, I mean, it's setting such a standard, isn't it? I When I look at Dr. No's lair, Scaramanga's Island reminds me of it in so many ways. Like, you've got the room where they go d- fine dining room, and then you've got the laboratory room as well. And I think I think you can really see the kind of the Ken Adam influence just on that alone. It's, it's outstanding. It really is. And mm. I'm not the biggest fan of the villain Doctor No, to be honest. I think he's all right. I think he's a bit... I don't think he's in it enough, and I don't think he does enough when he's in it. But I think one of the things why he is heightened is because of the Ken Adam set. I think that um, because you don't have that man dining at a table with fishes swimming in the background, we don't see him as this classic Bond villain from the first moment. And I think that that is just like... Already in the first film, you've got a production designer adding layer upon layer to a Bond film and giving it something that no other franchise at this point had. I love talking about Doctor No now because it feels like the one which I haven't seen for the longest time. You know, I probably haven't seen it for about 10 years before I saw it since doing the podcast. Matthew, you put it in your top 10 now, didn't you, in that Cinema Savvy? I know it's not... Yeah, I, I mean, I struggle with rankings anyway, but I, I just I can't underestimate what the impact and the the you know the foundation that Doctor No set 
just it, you know, and, and, and it is, it's a really cracking film and really, really like exciting to watch and intriguing and everything. And yeah. And, and like I say, the sets play a big part in that. Yeah. The, the laboratory is incredible. And I don't know that one, that introduction of a villain is so well done in the, the mystery and everything. And part of, part of that is the sets. I think the sets, the, the way he sort of finally introduced so that we mentioned the spider room, you just hear his voice and already it's almost like a horror film, isn't it, really? And that <laughs> that room, that scene, that's the one I was going to mention, No Time to Die, because the room near the end where Safin has has the child and, you know, there's the overlook, isn't it the room above? It's got mm-hmm. a very similar sort of ceiling with the hatches on it and square. It's like a square room and it does look it does look very Ken Adam in a, in a you know, a nice nod to him in a way. And that, that was something I quite liked from the film because we wanted a return to that more slightly outlandish, fantastical. We don't want... I mean, you could then say, conversely, Q's house, you know, it's just like the whole point of that was it wanted it to look like a normal house where he would live, you know, his apartment. So you, hmm. it'd be a bit weird if he strode into a massive, elaborate Ken Adam set and with a balcony and an internal staircase or whatever. But Yeah, cause, because it doesn't suit... No. Daniel Craig's films, does it? It's all, you know, you, you, and I think that's the problem. Well, not the problem. That's that. That's that's one of the issues with them is that, that there is no, that there's no sense of, of anything grand or, you know, kind of amazing in his films because they're so sort of you know, grounded. And, you know, like, yeah, I liked the kind of the little nods in No Time to Die. But th- again, they were kind of still, you know, kind of safe. It was like, oh, well, everyone likes, you know, brutalism is a big thing and it has been for the past few years let's just throw some concrete in there and you know and, it, and obviously it is you know a missile base so it's kind of well it, of course it's going to be like that i think the, the only thing that i i thought was actually quite interesting was the the the, the, the garden that felt like ken adam you know and, and obviously that was in one of the books wasn't it so yeah i think that um I do miss that. I miss, I miss that, 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 you know, f- f- for Bond films to be that, just to have that kind of pizzazz, you know what I mean? Just to be this a bit stylish and a bit kind of, ooh, you know, that's that's a really interesting choice. And everything seems quite safe in the production. It's very much matter of fact. And even if you go back to like, you know, what you know, in some of the Pierce Brosnan films, you know, some of those sets, are, because you've got Peter Lamont, there is a, a fantastical mm. element to them. And that's something I do kind of miss. But, you, you know, you can still be grounded like in dr no you just got to it's a stylistic choice isn't it yeah i i uh, i did like that about no time to die that there was that um at least that ambition to go back to a, a villain's lair to like i don't know to, to be for that final act yeah the concrete it was okay you know where the, the bit where sort of Safin is kneeling a bit sort of oriental you know in a sort of oriental manner with matilda and well, well no, possibly possibly yeah be. And then when Daniel Craig's bowing to him, that you know that it's strange scene, but it's I, I do I do quite I do quite like that set. I got kind of Blade Runner twenty forty nine type vibes from it in some ways, but I, I agree mm-hmm. I did like the I did like the garden with the you know as I called it the paddling pool, which was you know a bit that's a bit naughty <laughs> of me or, because I do think it's quite a nice set. They didn't uh, they could maybe have done a bit more with sort of setting mm. things for more around that than than in that other. But yeah, like I say, I do like that they they chose to try and go for that because it isn't something we've seen very much of at all. Yeah, you don't get a reveal, you know, like in you know, even down to I suppose 
you know, in in all the Bond films up until Daniel Craig, there was there was often this sort of sense of you know that that you know it's a Bond film, so it's not you know it can be you know fantastical. It doesn't have to be completely grounded. But some, sometimes you get those those shots where the, the the filmmakers are very much like look at what we've created, even down to like moments like it, that that aren't hugely impressive but have that kind of similar vibe. In A View to a Kill, when Zorin's in the airship. And the table oh. opens up, and he, d- he lifts his arm, and, and that that has that kind of moment where the, the film is saying, "Look, look, this is someone who's done something." You know, he, he could have just like pointed to like here's a map or here's a picture, you know, but he didn't. It has the table splits, and the the model, you know, the model comes up. It's just there's never, and I, I would like to see that uh, return to uh, someone uh, you know, uh, going to the effort of making you know a, a brilliant set and having those moments where the score comes up, and there's that yeah. moment. It's like you're, you're in awe of what you're watching is cinema, is a film, and it's big, and you can see the production value has gone into that. And I was kind of hoping that with No Time to Die, because obviously they've got this big set. But you don't. I don't know. Maybe it's just not that kind of type of filmmaking I mean, people do anymore. I don't uh, in Craig's partial defence, I will. <laughs> I mean, I do think there has been interesting. I think there has been interesting sets throughout the thing. I mean, Dominic Green as that kind of desert hotel thing at the end of Quantum of Solace. It's nothing on the scale of of Ken Adam. Mm. And then you've also had you also had Raoul Silver's thing that gets forgotten because it's halfway through the film as opposed to the end of the film. With I know it's I know it's cyber hacking and you're not a big fan of that, Chris. So you've just got a lot of wires going around the uh, <laughs> around the thing. But you know, there wouldn't be loads of wires. <laughs> so, yeah. It looks good. Yeah. That's all that matters. But I don't know. I it's safe, isn't it? It's certainly not hmm. not this level. But again, do I really watch many films these days that have this kind of level of, of imagination that Ken Adams is? I, I, I wonder if they're just a thing of, of yesteryear, unfortunately. Only sci-fi films now, really. Yeah. You know, like the Blade Runners and the Dunes. Yeah. And, yeah. Kind of thing and even they are a bit safe because they have that yeah, kind of, yeah. like, brutalist well kind of look to them. Just not. They're, they're visually dazzling, but they, they, they still give you what you expected. In Absolutely. A way. Mm-hmm. Which this is like a, you know, this isn't an espionage Advent- I mean, I know he didn't do From Us With Love. And Sid Kane, we've already mentioned, he's probably one of the most underrated guys oh, yeah. ever. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll do a Sid Kane special, don't you? Worry. <laughs> I'm, I'm people them on. Yeah. Another defence of the No Time To Die, the, the Poison Garden, I'm obsessed with that music that's being played when he's got Matilda in his arms. It's just like eerie. <laughs> and that was, I thought that was quite a good. But then he obviously... Just let the kid go and he wasn't that bothered, so. No. <laughs> Baffling. Hi, this is Robert Dobby, and you're watching Really 007 Podcast. And today is the first day of the rest of your life. So tune in. Ken Adam, he didn't work on From Rush With Love, as we've said, because he was doing Doctor Strange Love. But he was obviously, right, well, he's with Free now, so we get him back for Goldfinger. <sighs> Goldfinger doesn't, it doesn't seem to... You Only Live Twice and Spy Love Me are the ones that people seem to mention the most. Goldfingers. I mean, the Fort Knox is the, the most famous one that, that we've mentioned already. And that is just incredible. And Ken Adams said that his sets, particularly for this film, he thinks that they accentuate the dramatic message of the film. I know that sounds a bit pompous, you might think, but they really do. You know, the, the gold, I think he wanted the gold to be going up and up and up. And of course... I don't know whether people know the background to this, but they 
wouldn't know what the inside of a bank looked like, let alone Fort Knox. And because they had these links with, what's his name, uh, JFK, because he loves the novel from Much We Love, they managed to get permission to sort of have a look. And it was quite frightening, apparently. You know, there were guards with Ken Adam and all this. But the takeaway was that, no, I want to make it look more fantastical. He let his imagination run wild, and it's just... It's like they're, they're a workable set, aren't they? The, everything like the yeah. the vault, you know, that the crushes that guy yeah. and using the actual gold itself. It's there. You can touch it. It's all it's real. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, it yeah. It's, yeah. it's believable that, that, that the door, the safe, is heavy. Oh, oh it looks... And it isn't going to stop because someone stood behind it. I mean, I've got to confess that when I was a kid and I saw Goldfinger, I just thought that was the interior of Fort Knox. I, I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't think that that was what somebody had designed or thought up in their head. And I suppose what I'm getting at is, is, is that whilst these are not kids' films, but like you watch a volcano, you watch a in you only live twice. You watch someone's got a, a, a space station or a missile silo under a volcano. That is so fantastical that that captures a child's imagination and you think, oh my word, that is amazing. But because Fort Knox is a real place, you just take that for that you think that is what it looks like. So I think that's why I have never really given Ken Adam the credit that he deserves on Mm. Goldfinger because I don't think of it like a space station or a volcano, but it's still absolutely outstanding. It really is. Yeah. Everything... I'm just getting shivers to myself thinking about that Fort Knox scene. I mean, there are many other sets that he's done mm-hmm. in that film that are brilliant, but just everything is so perfect about about the scene because you know you've got the ticking the ticking of the bomb. <laughs> yes. The sound design is so amazing. Yeah, there's the, the, there's the constant boom, 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 and then yeah. the the this, the metal people running on the metal and everything really resonates, and it's it's so like bleak and well, not bleak, but you know that is such a vast area that it echoes everywhere. And the use of score is really, really well done, you know, yeah. only coming in at key points. It's just, ah, oh, magical. The fight with, you know, the end fight with Odd Job. Odd Job, yeah. It's one of the greatest things you've ever oh. seen, is it really is. It's yeah. just, it's just. <laughs> the lack uh, of score and then it comes in. It's just <laughs> the perfect contrast to to the fight with Red Grant though, isn't it? So Red Grant, you've got this frenetic, claustrophobic, fast-paced fight, yeah. And then you just you reverse everything with Odd Job. You're in a wide open space. It's yeah. all slow. It's all tense. It's it's just it's beautiful. It's just so good. Finishing on the the Fort Knox sets, apparently Saltzman didn't like it because he thought it looked too much like a prison. But then Guy Hamilton as well wasn't that keen looking at the designs. But then when he saw it built, he was like, "My word, this is mm-hmm. incredible." <laughs> In fact, apparently the controller of the actual Fort Knox sent a letter to Ken Adam after the film had come out, congratulating them, thinking, you know, this this looks way better than what we're dealing with <laughs> the day. Um, because it, you assumed it was Fort Knox, that it doesn't get enough credit. And apparently there were irate letters from people wondering, well, how on earth did these Brits get inside Fort Knox? You know, this is outrageous. Why were they allowed to film there? People get complaining. So... So you can not only can he do the fantastical sets, but he can do ones that you think are actually mm-hmm. real. I think it's incredible. And apparently they had a twenty-four hour guard, personal guard at the set, just in case they stole some of the gold. I think they. <laughs> but um, well, if we go back to the beginning of the film, the actual pre-title sequence is all Ken Adam as well. You know, oh. 
sort of South American vibe to it, mm-hmm. even though it's all Pinewood, I think. Like, sort of another ultimate Bond pre-title sequence with him going around and around. And then the the bath, even the bath scene, I mean, that's pretty pretty crisp, isn't it? The Goldfinger pre-title sequence scene is this, my second favourite pre-title sequence into the whole thing. Only Spy Love Me gets, is, uh, I prefer. I think you can never underestimate how ambitious that is. And it's just so unlike the from Russia with Love one. It's just, you know, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's nothing to do with the plot. It's its own little mini movie. And we love that. The sets are phenomenal. Absolutely brilliant. They put it, you know, sticking the, uh, the dynamite around the thing at the beginning, and then just he's in the bar watching the time go and all the rest of it. And then we get into the um, bathroom and shocking, positively shocking. And we finish with a quip. I mean, we've got everything there. It's just, and even to the point that it starts with a seagull floating on the water, and then, oh, it's James Bond actually disguised as a seagull. I mean, we're talking absolute yeah. ace white, star. White, tu- white tux underneath a wetsuit. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, so classic Bond. It's, <laughs> it's just brilliant. The music as well. The... <laughs> I don't think you remember. Just so well done. The brass, it sort of comes in and then it comes into the Bond theme. The memories you have of these scenes are, are partly due to the sets. And we've mentioned briefly Goldfinger's meeting room. With just think of the map that flips over, and then is it the billiard table that comes away? And it's the the plans of Fort Knox. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's there. You can t- It's there. I can see it happening. It's an actual thing happening in front of you. Yeah, right. yeah. And you see, he has the control panel. He starts flicking switches, yeah. and the shutters come down. And this, t- and everyone's there, and all the other. Guys, Whoa, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, it's just ah, amazing. We've talked about obviously the estate, and I know all around the, the sort of chase was around Pinewood, wasn't it? And we'll, we've, we discussed a bit of that on the the DB5 episode. But the the factory and the actual room, of course, with the laser in the laser itself. Uh, you know, there, there weren't films with lasers before that he, that's it's inspired by. You know, the guy creates this in his mind and how it's going to look, and that's what he's saying about it. it accentuates the dramatic message, doesn't it? It's like. Mm-hmm how well lit that scene is, how dark it is, other than the, the laser on Bond. And he's he's dark, and obviously he's got his dark clothes on. And it's, uh, it's, just, it's so well filmed, isn't it? The, the, the t- you know, Goldfinger turning to look at him as he says the famous line, and so cocky. And then you see him in the background chatting. Yeah. And he's so tense, and that's another room that Ken Adams designed or whatever. And again, John Barry, it's just a joke. The, the tension is from the music, it's just... And Connery, Connery, you buy it with the sweat dripping off him. And Thunderball's a bit weird because, of course, a lot of it's outdoor, a lot of it's underwater. Mm. So you might think, oh, no, actually... It, I can't really remember Ken Adam doing much on this, but the Spectre meeting room, I keep going, how iconic that is. Oh. That's like, you know, Austin Powers has obviously taken inspiration from that. Ken Adam, that, he said, I was getting fed up with boardrooms and long tables, <laughs> so I decided they'd just be sitting on armchairs. It's, just, it's true, it isn't it? It's so well. Things at the yeah. side of them to write. It does. And I, I really yeah. like 
sorry if I'm jumping a bit ahead of it, there's, you've got your Spectre meeting room and then mm-hmm. you've got that MI6 briefing room, which, yeah. you, you mm-hmm. know, the polar opposites, yeah. but like almost the same sort of thing is happening that, you know, an organisation is being briefed about a plan in both. What a film. Mm-hmm. The yeah. shutters with Blofeld, you just, you don't see him much, of course. Oh, which is our favourite Blofeld, John. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. That's how, that's how I would have um, introduced, I know this sort of, Tried to do yeah. that a little bit, Inspector, but then not quite. Like I would have done him, I think, like that for the whole film for for Spectre, and then maybe him being revealed in the next film or something like that. Desperate to do the the immortal line from No Time to Die in possibly the worst scene in the entire franchise. Maybe anyway, we'll uh, we'll get we'll get onto that again at some point later. But yeah, Thunderball, the conference room, Chris, double O agents yeah. all lined up, mm-hmm. perfect scenario. He got two actual Austrian artists to do the, the sort of tapestries mm. and the map that come down. <laughs> it must have cost quite a lot of money. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's that, yeah. that that's what Bond film should be. Is he's yeah. going that extra step and just like you could just oh well we could do that. No 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 we're going to do this. You know and I think that's that that's so evident in in particularly during this sort of period is it's everything every penny spent is on screen. And it's just, and it's it's just the, the the best craftsmanship, and in all aspects, in all kind of you know photography and production, and you know sound and music, all that. It's just everyone is just giving it the all, and you can see that, and that's why we're still talking about them now. Oh, he did the boat, the you know the uh, disco balance, yeah. but like he got two boats and put them together, basically. I think. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I think Peter Lamont did a lot of this with him. And Peter Lamont did a lot of the the jet at the bottom of the the ocean, and all mm. that stuff, you know, because that's obviously they're not going to film that in the middle of an ocean, are they? They've got to they've got to build it like a, any other set, I suppose. Another amazing thing which Kedam was involved with, I don't know whether you know this, the in Largo's complex in his villa, or whatever, mm. the sharks and all that. So <laughs> underneath, they they had to sort of build all this, and then there's the famous story. I don't know. You, you yeah. Know, yeah. Right? Because Sean Connery was obviously, I'm not getting in there with these sharks. They put these perspex, Ken Adam put all these perspex screens on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But it still wasn't. You managed to get through some of them. <laughs> there is one shot, isn't there, where he just gets his legs out yeah. right just in time. <laughs> It's real. He keeps saying it. it's real. <laughs> <laughs> it's just unbelievable. It is. We really are like, it's like the perfect storm of just mm-hmm. the greatest geniuses 
all coming together, isn't it, at the same time? And I, I just talking about this now, I take for granted just how amazing this is, how you've got all these people together and we're so blessed. And 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 maybe and maybe in some ways we shouldn't be as hard on some aspects of the modern films because you're never gonna get like Mm. a set of people like that all together ever again it's it's unbelievable you will never work in a place like this again this is brilliant (laughs) (laughs) the disco volante though it actually went i mean i think they sped it up slightly but it went Mm. faster than any bow ever even though it's two huge things put together and it was real you know they they did manage to (laughs) it's so slow thunderball rubbish Shelled a few listeners there, but anyway. Quick thoughts on Thunderball while you, while we've got you on Thunderball, lads. I, I think it's just it's less the film isn't kind of as fondly remembered as something like Goldfinger because you know everyone complains about it being baggy. You know, in the middle, I, I, I don't agree with that. I suppose there are it has less of a, a grandiose kind of feel as maybe Goldfinger has because you know there are a, a few striking sets. You know, like the ones we mentioned, the briefing rooms and and, and the like. But then, because it is, there's the, the, the carnival scenes and and you know all that is much more kind of sort of grounded. And they are brilliantly shot and brilliantly realised. But you know, how do you top Fort Knox, which is so integral to the to the plot? In the same way with you know, hollowing out a volcano, the the things that people remember. You know, when you say Ken Adams, that's what you think. So if, I think for, for for Thunderball, there isn't that. For the, I suppose the casual viewer, there isn't that striking set piece in a Ken Adams set, and I think that's maybe why people kind of, you know, it's not necessarily a fault of the film. It's just that there isn't those scenes that it needs to have, you know, huge set. The big ending, rather than being a set, is underwater, which is I know people, you know, people do struggle with, but what an amazing idea or mm. what ambition to do that! I've never. I've said this before, I've never seen that in a film since, that no. such long periods of a film and, you know, the, mm. almost the, the third act climax is, is takes place underwater. That's mm. 1965. It's just astonishing. Yeah, yeah. Then you know the. I think it's on the uh, on the ins. Is it the inside documentaries that are on on the the original DVDs? They talked about the, that ending and saying how when they were watching it, it was just a bit. It's like because you're underwater, so they're not moving very quickly. It doesn't seem very dramatic. Then add John Barry's score to it, and suddenly it's yeah. elevated beyond. And that's like what Joe was saying. You are you're dealing with the greats, you know. Like yeah. has 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 like I say that you know I don't think there's been a better combination of of composer with a franchise. I don't think there's been a, maybe a better combination of production designer with a franchise mm. because they made it their own. And I think that's the problem is that no one's that it's so brilliant. It's cast such a long shadow over cinema. No one else can quite reach those heights. No. All you can do is just like crib and go, oh, well, we'll try and do a Ken Adam set here, but you're not Ken Adam. You know, we'll do a John Barry esque type score, but you're not John Barry. So everything feels like, uh, you know, <laughs> there's that kind of does. It's a bit. Yeah. But I, I, I think, I think I completely agree with that. I, I think I'd probably just rather them, you know, like I say, that there seems to be so much more 
emphasis on directors these days and everything. I'd rather the producers say, right, you know, he's on, he or she is our number one production designer. He or she is our number one composer. He or she will have you as a director. You don't get to choose X, Y. I presume those are all in the negotiations and whatnot, but I still felt, I still, I still felt, yeah, but I yeah. still felt Martin Campbell and even, mm. um, I think it changed. Yeah. Things have changed. I think it changed. Mendes. Sam Mendes. Mm-hmm. That, that's when it, that's when it yeah. did change. Mark Forster did his job. Yeah. And, you know, he had, I don't know, David Arnold and stuff. It, 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 that didn't seem like he came in and said, right, I want this person, this person, or I'm not doing it type thing. He might have done it. He changed the titles. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and it was horrendous. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. I just feel Sam Mendes was the first time, like, he was, he was, he was almost as big as the yeah. – Phil. He was, yeah, he yeah. was, he was, he was a big name director brought on, and I think that's that. That's a bad, as as you see. I don't, I, I don't agree with that because then that that person is bigger than the franchise, and I don't think we, we should be getting into that. But you're right. You read those stories of like Terence Young going basically to Ken Adam saying, "Well, you're the person. You, I trust you. You go off and do it because they know that these are the greats. You know, there's no mess about. That's your job. I understand." You're one of the great, you know, greatest production designers. I know you're one of the greatest composers. You go off, do your thing, and we're just happy to have you on board. <laughs> you know, here's your check. And I think now it's there's more ego involved. And I think that's just in general. I think I, I think filmmaking has changed so much. It feels less of a of, of a sort of communal thing. You never hear directors talking about, you know, how it's very much the artistic vision or the, you know, that kind of thing it seems it's just not the same as, as it was. And I think you can see that when the directors, new directors come on board and say, well, we'll throw that out because I'm in charge now and I want this and I want that rather than going, well, what have I got here? Oh, well, you know, Peter Lamont's your production designer. Great. Well, he's done some great films. That's, why would we change that? You're absolutely right. True. And true. it comes back to Ken Adam because I know even Cubby was like, Yes, he's a genius, but he's extremely expensive <laughs> and he isn't indispensable because we've already said, you know, Sid Kane was there. Mm. If not, I mean, you have other geniuses. And he was actually good. <laughs> Do you know who he was going to bring in for Moonraker? Who was the other great production designer at the time who did who did uh, Superman? <laughs> Please, someone can remember this name. You'll love this. If Chris can't get it, then... I can't, I can't know. Well... John Barry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> was production designer. <laughs> Just getting out. Well, there's no way that would work. So, you know. Yeah, no, no, it would have had both. Barry and Barry. Yeah. <laughs> We're up to You Only Live Twice, and we've obviously mentioned, I mean, you can't, can't go much bigger and better than the massive volcano set, but just a bit of background. He, Ken Adam went with the producers to Japan for three weeks to just sort of look and try and get ideas for things because they didn't have this volcano in mind. That only came to fruition because they, after searching the whole island, the main island, they found absolutely nothing, they thought, because they were looking for stuff like uh, in the You Only the Twice novel, such as like there's a castle and a poison garden, but they didn't <laughs> find anything like that. So they, they went to... What they did find, though... <laughs> When they were when they were on the schedule, they saw they heard about ninjas because people didn't know about ninjas in the Western world then. So then that's why they thought, right, well, let's put them in the film. And they also had a massage from these beautiful Japanese women, and that's why that was in the film with Ken Adam, you know, on the, having a massage. Yeah, 
So they put them into the script. So good, isn't it? And then the most famous thing was that they went, uh, I think it's Kyushu, the island, off, you know, one of the southern islands, I think, off Japan. They found this volcano, these sort of, all these volcanoes and everything. And then that's when they had, I think it was Ken Adam and Cubby had the idea of, well, why couldn't that be a layer? Do you want to build that? And the process is, what is it? He, so he sketches what he does, Ken Adam. He sketches his ideas and then he builds it into a 3D model. And that's when, after that, it's like, right, we'll have to, have to start building the thing. This cost a million dollars, just just that set. So it was, And that then is, I mean, that's tens, tens of millions now, isn't it? That took up a huge chunk of the budget. But Cubby was like, yeah, go for it. Fair enough. This used up 700, over 700 tons of steel. Over 400 people had to had to work for three and a half months to build it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you get a god complex, Ken Adam, just looking at this going on every day. Because it obviously had to had to be wide enough for the helicopter to come in. And, mm. and no one's ever done that before. So this is all new. You know, no one's ever landed anything like that. And it had to have the shuttle coming out of it. <laughs> and then it's got, you know, a working monorail. That's <laughs> unbelievable, isn't it? This is incredible as well. It could be seen from three miles away. That's how big it was. I just and Ken Adams said, seeing your drawings and ideas taking shape and becoming reality in steel and concrete is the most satisfying feeling. It's like seeing your own baby grown and become a Superman. <laughs> you only live twice. Another little talked about film these days, but the sets usually talked about more than anything. I think. Well, mm. well, I was just going to say the superstar of you only live twice is the set. <laughs> That's that's what comes to my mind when I think that. And I think you've got Ken Adam on set design, you've got Roald Dahl writing it, and you've got Lewis Gilbert directing it. I mean, if you read the... I was saying before, if you read um, Some Kind of Hero, I think it's fair to say that a lot of a lot of people who work with Ken Adam found him quite hard work. He's, there's no doubt he's uh, had a massive, massive ego. You, you read about Roald Dahl and his life, and Roald Dahl was an eccentric, to say the least. I said this before, but to quote the great Elliot Carver, the distance between uh, insanity and genius is only measured by success. And and that's I think that's the thing is that you have got so much imagination in this film. This is this is the thing, and 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 I think Lewis Gilbert. I mean, I'm not entirely sure how much how much say he has in it all and all the rest of it. But what I will say to Lewis Gilbert's credit is 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 that in the three films that he directs, he basically gives Ken Adam full reign to be as grandiose and over the top as possible with those sets. The the sets that you think of when you think of Ken Adam, (laughs) that's the thing. I mean, I don't want to say the best because we've talked about how great Goldfinger is in a different way. That's the thing. And You Only Live Twice to me, I I really, really like the film. I do think it meanders a bit because of Connery's. I don't think Connery's looks very interested at times. He's certainly not the same Connor with the swagger as he has in Thunderball. I was sort of criticise his performance. He's still great. And a lot of the first thing, a lot of the first hour, it's one of the most beautifully shot films in the whole series, actually. The cinematography is fantastic. And actually, I'd say in the first hour, it probably is more just a, like a kind of wish you were here episode of Japan in a lot of ways. It's very much, in a great way, don't get me wrong, I love it. Uh, Judith Chalmers pops. Judith Chalmers pops <laughs> up in a. She she came to deliver little Nelly with you, and uh, yeah, I think a little old lady. <laughs> yeah, <her>. yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think it's beautiful to look at, but it goes up a few levels when they get to the volcano. 
the volcano is amazing. And would I be right? It, well, it's possibly the biggest, the best battle in the series as like a, a whole battle, as opposed mm. to That's not, fair. yeah, in terms of Bond and his team of ninjas versus uh, Spectre. It's a fantastic battle. I don't know what else to say. I'll let somebody else speak because it's just, it's brilliant. It's great. I think you're right. I think that that it's, it's so iconic that if you say, you know, have you seen, you know, you would, if have you seen You Only Live Twice? You're like, oh, which which one's that? The one with the volcano. Ah, oh, yeah, that's that, that's the one. Yeah, it's just like it's unbelievable, and for it to be, and I love the fact that it is, you know, in in that classic kind of you know third act, every it's all set there, it's everything finishes that you know you you, you it all meets in this amazing set where it goes from them approaching and you know worrying about stepping into that and realizing it's like the metal top part yeah. that moves back and so it slowly re- reveals you know in within, within that and then there's all these little off rooms and stuff where you know there's like the controlled centers and things and it just Those feels <laughs> it just feels like such a real because it is a real fully functioning set you know that on paper you know it's you know the, the baddies layer is in a volcano you think oh no one's gonna buy this but because it is such a fully real and it feels like everything works and everything's in its real in a, in a, in a logical place the monorail goes here this is what and like we were saying before that the sets just feel so real even though they're very stylized they feel real yeah. and grounded in you flick this switch this is what happens rather than you know it just like kind of things kind of happen but I think that set is just well yeah it's amazing and one thing I had I was looking to do this it only dawned on me that actually when there's a shot looking up from inside and obviously you see the opening of the volcano and the, and the, the surrounding sides of it is slightly at an angle they all it looks like the gun barrel and I'd ne- never oh, dawned yeah. on me that but if you look up you know it's like the gun anyway but not That's only that barrel. that set is 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 amazing the other sets like the set where Connery has the fight with uh, the rock's granddad another Ooh, yeah. with, the, with the with the hidden oh. you know bar and Snow all these little flipping. little details and the furniture just sits perfectly in that setting yeah yeah and then obviously you know tiger's underground you know the train and, and his office, where it has the two the screens. It's just, yeah, I, 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 it's hard to 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 think. They're so iconic. It's like you can't give him enough credit. <laughs> no, <laughs> they add so much to it. And it, again, it's never it never feels like oh, that's a bit over the top. Even in Moonraker, which is you know has a space station in there, it feels believable. You know, and not to skip ahead, yeah. but you know with the, with the with the, there's the table. And obviously, it reveals that they're actually underneath the rocket. Bond and uh, is underneath the rocket, and the roof opens up, and then the table drops down, and the, the chairs fold into the floor. It's yeah. what an amazing piece of design. That it's is so astonishing good. film. And again, it's just how people can say, "Oh, Moonraker." It's like it's, it's like put that bo- bottom tier. Bond. Oh, you mad? <laughs> well, just. Just sorry, sorry, Maff. Just very quickly, just to highlight about the you only twice as well is is that the year after you only twice came out, Captain Scarlet came out, and if you ever type in like on Google Captain Scarlet set designs, they are just you only live twice all over the place. <laughs> there is a real influence going really on there. Are. Yeah, sorry, Maff. Stingray. No, no, it's it's fine. I was just gonna just 
I mean, not for my quick thoughts on you only twice. I absolutely love watching it. It's really, really easy to watch. It's a, it's such, it's filmmaking on a, on a grand scale. And you know, when, when people watch films that, you know, that there's almost an order of what are the most crucial parts. And, you know, you've got story, you've got performances, you've got dialogue and things like that. But I think sometimes people do underestimate sets you know, I think people often underestimate film scores. It depends who they are, because some people, you know, we, we know some people who say they don't notice music in films, but surely sets people would no, people would notice them. And if there's when when you mm. see that of a volcano layer and like you know, and the other ones we've talked about, the other ones that we will talk about, they have to be revered. And you have, you know, you, you can't say, "Oh, I hated that film." Well, it, you can't just dismiss a film. And when they've got loads of these amazing things as part of them and, you know, the production design and everything, then I think I I absolutely love You Only Live Twice. But that having, you know, every time you're watching it, you know that there's the big set piece at the end in the volcano. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what an an incredible idea. And and (laughs) the way that they've pulled it off is just phenomenal, really. Yeah, I hate to say it, but there's there's even more things from this film from Ken Adam that we haven't mentioned. So we sort of alluded to it, but in the volcano, there's other rooms. Okay, yeah, yeah. there's the control room, but there's the there's the his blowfelt sub office. Yeah, office. I was just going to say with the piranha. Yeah, the piranha pit. pool with yeah. the roaring fire and, uh, yeah. and fight with Hans. The fight with my favourite henchman, Hans. Oh yeah, <laughs> one of the best fights in the series. Yeah. No one will ever say that, but yeah, but the just the whole the lovely design of that. It's like a curved steel mm. bridge, and the way it sort of drops—that's oh. that's new. This is original, and Ken Adam has done that. The the foot using the, you know, the <laughs> I always remember when going to Dad's office, and I think he had a like a security button. Is like, oh, what happens if you press that? And I was thinking of it, you know, does it drop someone down into some kind of <laughs> yeah, piranha pit? No, just the security guards will eventually come, probably take ages. But And a bit of this in Thunderball, there's like um, tapestries on the walls, have you noticed, in that room? It's like stone, because mm. it's as if it's carved out of the volcano, isn't it, half of the room? I mean, I love that scene in general, uh, and the, the sort of, it's obviously co- it's copied a bit later on, isn't it? I'm trying to think which film it's copied in, you know, in the... Oh, no, sorry, that was copying um, Aping from Russia with Love, wasn't it? With When you think that they're going to kill Kronstein, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and Kronstein gets killed, doesn't he? The other main thing, guys, from the film that Ken Adam did, Little Nelly. What? <laughs> dearie wow. me, dearie, dearie me. It's, it's just getting out of hand. I know, I know. <laughs> what? How different is that to building a volcano? Ken Adam heard a radio interview with effectively the inventor of the real Little Nelly, you know, the original mm-hmm. one, this RAF wing commander called... Major Boothroyd. No, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he, he's there, isn't he? And Little Nelly was named after the music hall star Nelly Wallace, who has a, a, a similar surname, of course, to the, to the inventor of the original one. So the idea as well, the whole idea of it being shipped in different bags, that was Ken Adams' idea because he, of course, built it in in London or whatever, at Pinewood, and then thought, heck, how are we going to get this to Japan? That was his idea. Like It could be like a DIY kit for Q to make <laughs> when they get there, which is incredible. And apparently it was his wife who designed the lovely leather the crocodile uh, bags that Q puts them all in. So she made all those bags. It's just this, this incredible talent that's going on. In the- Absolutely brilliant. He didn't sort of engineer how it flew and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but the design of it. That's another thing that, I don't really hear people mentioning much, Bond fans mentioning much, but 
to the wider audience, Little Nelly is one of the most famous things in the franchise. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, I'm just thinking this through in my head and I'm thinking like, I love them all, but you know, the, the, the two films that are the most grounded in that early 60s period, in that 60s period, uh, from Russia with Love and Majesties, and the, the two that Ken Adams not on. And, you know, you know, and, and it's like, cause and we're hearing all this imagination just coming through all the time. And you start to just build up a pitch in your head is that <laughs> let's give him a bit even more credit than deserves because maybe actually the very things that we love about so much of Bond, not just like he thinks these little things up, but he's almost like the nucleus of this. He's the mm. actual catalyst of where this has all come from. Just imagine going to the cinema in 1967, seeing those sets, seeing that layer, like the echo of the command centre and the, <laughs> the monorail. and It's just... Must jaw dropping, isn't it? You'll never be able to get that kind of awe, I don't think, from a film now because everything's been done. Nothing will be built uh, other than on computer to that extent now. I don't think it's just a shame we weren't alive then, personally. But uh, I'd love to see that one on the big screen. Love to see that one. Mm. Diamonds are forever. Of course, he didn't do Honor Majesties, which has some incredible sets, but his glory is real. We've mentioned this, of course, in the review at length. So if you want to. The Slumber Mortuary. Uh, <laughs> that was a Pinewood set after he'd visited real ones in uh, like the Las Vegas area. The thing, uh, apparently Ken Adam was a bit worried about this film and it wasn't one of his favourite ones to design because Vegas to him is so, you know, mm. sort of, I don't know, mm. trashy, isn't it? And it's not his taste at all. He was worried that people think would think, he had done all the casino interiors, which were actual real casinos. He was worried that people thought he'd have done those sets, but they were they were actually filmed with, of course, permission from um, Howard Hughes, weren't they? And the 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 owners of these casinos. But he he of course designed. We've mentioned one, John, haven't we? The Blofeld's room, mm. uh, Blofeld, Willard White's room, which is an extremely Ken Adam looking, uh, <laughs> the most uncomfortable rug <laughs> on the glass. Yeah. yeah. Not as functional on that one, but the mortuary, going back to the mortuary, just a terrifying scene in general, but, uh, and then John Barry's doing that, that music that isn't on the soundtrack for the, for the organ <laughs> and all that. <laughs> oh, love this film so much now, dear me. One of the sets in the film which looks like the most Ken Adam set you've ever seen, the Bambi and Thumper scene, Oh, he's, yeah. He's an actual house. Mm. Yeah. But he suggested that location. <laughs> he <laughs> found the house and said, right, can we film and tried to get the permission. What a guy. <laughs> Even that, you know. Perfectly, doesn't it? Because oh, yeah. you, would, you would just assume that it is a say and he would have. Yeah. Desi- and that's the, he would have designed that. You know, it looks like something he would yeah. absolutely have done. Mm. And I think that. that, that I understand why you probably felt a bit worried about it because it's you know, there's another you know a, a hotel. It's like, what do you do with that? You know, and mm. obviously on the interior, that's where he starts. You know, you can see it's definitely sort of Ken Adam influences. Yeah, and if you get through the the twelve hours of our review for Diamonds Are Forever, the thing that is disappointing is the oil rig because there's just mm, nothing yeah. for him to do and it's just yeah, an oil yeah. rig and it's just he seems so i don't know obviously you know, budgets are running out of money and stuff so which is understandable but that's the one thing for me really lets it down is it's like come on ken it's like ken was off that day and someone was like well let's just shoot it on an oil we'll just get an oil rig you know rather mm. i imagine he had loads of sketches of like 
his oil rigs. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, that film is is a strange mix of of reality. But then look, you know, in the 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 moon base, in the, the you know the moon buggy, and you know yeah. those buggy, little flashes of of, yeah. of him kind of pushing things, you know. And being definitely his stamp is on it. He just doesn't have as much to do on that than mm. other films because you don't you don't have a volcano or a, a <laughs> vault to build. You know, it's just like, <laughs> here's a hotel and here's another room. I'm a massive fan of the fish tank chair that Tiffany Case sits in. Oh yeah, I think and that that was him. I no joke. I'm not, I'm not even yeah, yeah, silly. Yeah. I, I think I think that for what is a hotel room to put a massive chair. That is actually a fish tank <laughs> is just outrageous, mm-hmm. and it's one of the. I think it's one of the most iconic shots of the film, where she's got that thing round her. Like that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that stinks of Ken Adam to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the lovely, <laughs> not the fish. lounge jazz version of the, the theme tune. In the back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just. It's just it's such a crisp film, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I wish we'd asked uh, Trina Parks about that because I, I assumed because I knew it wasn't a Ken Adams set that he wasn't around. But yeah. it would have been interesting to see whether she she might have met the guy. Presumably mm. she did if if he was lurking on set and everything. But yeah, <laughs> lurking, lurking, <Yeah. laughs> not lurking in a Morris Binder way. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, sheesh. Yeah. I was just thinking then one of the moments that is is pure Ken Adam is the satellite, the laser when it opens, yeah, fans yeah. out oh yeah, yeah, that is so Ken, yeah, Ken. Ken. and better, um, than, better than the CGI one in Dino yeah. the Dead you know, the same thing yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry. no you're absolutely right, it is and, and that, like when I was just thinking then the poster you know, that has, you know, Bond with the, you know, the, the, it's like Try and narrow that down with the two bikini ladies next to it. But there's the the, 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 the <laughs> that fan the, the diamond encrusted yeah, laser is just so iconic. Again, it's just amazing. Another great set was we did mention it in the review was in the pre-title sequence. You know, with the making mud pie. Oh yeah. yes, yeah. He did say, didn't it, that they absolutely stunk Ken Adams of the potatoes. <laughs> they were like rotten potatoes yeah. left yeah. on set, and it was all. Felt so sorry for the actor who had to be submerged in it. <laughs> Even that gun, I'm obsessed with the gun. The water gun. <laughs> the water gun. <laughs> yes. Oh, lovely. That's definitely Ken Adam, that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's just... Uh, oh. <laughs> what a man. Yeah, that, that won the favourite, you know, Ken Adam <laughs> device. <laughs> <Come on. Yeah. laughs> I think it's, so I'll just check where it got in uh, architect design. Uh, <laughs> 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 That's something from Flash Gordon, wasn't it? This is a tale of the supernatural. The Tapes, a podcast of the uncanny. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me, host Christopher Goldie and guests as we discuss the best in unsettling television and film. Who is this? Who is coming? Find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Search for at the tapes pod part of the pod dojo network ken adam he, he didn't work on the next two live and let die and the man with the golden gun because he was working on sleuth and barry linden to keep mentioning that so he was back though for spy love me and i presume part of that was because lewis gilbert was back on hand he talked about this at length in the spy love me review again because then you've got now you one of the things was that with you only live twice when they built that massive set it could only be used as that so for this 
Cubby and Ken Adam, they thought, right, let's just build a massive soundstage. And it, even though it cost 1.8 million, this one, they earned loads of money on it because they hired it out and it became the, the 007 soundstage. So it was a genius business move mm-hmm. by them. And of course, they, in, it, in it for this film, they build the Liparus. Uh, that is the right one, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. That's not even, so not even the Atlantis. It's, it's just, <laughs> and where do you go? I mean, we, I think we spent most of the first three or four hours of the review just talking about Ken Adam, didn't we, really? It's just amazing. It's, it's, it's just phenomenal, really. I, I can't even begin. Yeah, I'd love to know what sort of, what, what way around it was, because, you know, Lewis getting the, picking up the phone, Ken, my. <laughs> Boy, if I got some some <laughs> treats for you, as in, you know, I want you to go mad. I want you to go mad. And just so many of them are so iconic. I keep using that word, but mm. the the liparous, you know, I, that is, I can't believe, you know, it's real. It's there. I can't believe there's two, three submarines, <laughs> you know, underwater and these amazing, you know, all, all, you know the, the the metal work around it, but then uh, the thing behind the shutters and the bit with the big gold globe, globe. You know, it's amazing. And then that's before monorail the, again. The, yeah, <laughs> lovely monorail. monorail. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know, in Atlantis, because obviously Atla- that couldn't actually be. I mean, it would be <laughs> enormous. So it's model work, and but then the the interior sets. You know, Stromberg's dining room with the you know the, the oh. screens at the side and and then and then that shark you know i mentioned it before the shark pit oh yeah oh, just instantly think of it in all the dimensions it's just oh it's 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 too much really it's it's just it's just astonishing the seats that uh, barbara back is on you know yeah yeah. yeah yeah there's that Such room i didn't even space. mention that room yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> two floors again yeah and oh, the corridors. The lift that spins around. Yeah. I had to check what year Star Wars came out because the, the corridors were, were Bond's going to get. It looks like the Death Star, the way yeah. it's lit and the, the round kind of, you know, tunnels and things. The same year, uh, though, so. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I, I, again, the way it's lit with. Just, yeah. It's quite dark, isn't it? Those, that, those scenes of him kind of yeah. making his way around. The, the escape pod, of course, I presume. Yes. For. Iconic, unbelievable, and, and and also it doesn't. It feels even though it's got a monorail in it, and obviously there was one in, you know, you only live twice. It feels like you would have one. It's not like we're just adding it for the sake. Yeah, of, yeah. You would have one, and it's also a nice little take on. You know, it's much more. I suppose it's much more because we, we we it's more space age essentially isn't mm. it? it's much more kind of futuristic looking there's more, more sleeker lines much more yeah. polished metal and chrome it's yeah. much brighter um these the, you know the, the actual sets yeah again it's like with the with the the submarine but it's just like oh well, what which one's that everyone knows that set yeah. you know submarines inside another ship it's just and then a massive battle again yeah. that works well because you, you've, you it builds up to that you know, it's the set is being used. It's you know it, rather than it's just you've built a set and it's just we'll f- f- photograph it really nicely. There's a reason they're in that set, and it and that's why it works so well. That end, the last third. Chris, do you know who was production designer on Star Wars? Go on, John Barry. John Barry. <laughs> <laughs> so good, you know these. <laughs> but yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that. The little blimp of the, the thing at the end. The 
escape mm. pod. Mm. Not all I bad. don't. I don't think he he did wet Nelly because obviously that is just a you know a Kawasaki. Well, I don't know what it is. It's like an actual just one of its machine. Though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. They created yeah, yeah. the film, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe he did have a hand in it. I don't know, but it's just getting ridiculous, isn't it? I think he did say the Atlantis was the toughest thing he's ever had to do. It took him about a week before he could even think of how it would work in sketches and stuff like that. And some of the shots at the beginning of it, they do look like it is real size. Like when the camera turns, there's one shot in particular. Well, I, uh, yeah, sorry. I, I mean, I, I've said this before, but I think obviously you've got Derek Meddins on special on, yeah. on that. And yeah, it, it has a lot of Stingray vibes. Yeah, yeah, of course. The, the Atlantis thing. I think there's an underwater, there's an underwater um, city in in Stingray that very much is, let's say, Atlantis is influenced by. But great, you know, great because that's what uh, Carl Strongberg wanted to build. Is wanting to build an underwater city, so it mm. works perfectly. Yeah, <laughs> and and the contrast of that, and then the scenes in in Egypt were, yeah. you know using real and then yeah. obviously some of it is sets and it's just Max it's Kelder's such slug. a grandiose film isn't it it's I know like in the advertising it was always like the you know, biggest and the best best kind of film and you know Bond film yeah but it was like <laughs> <laughs> you can edit this out like balled no. out like <laughs> let's just swinging throw everything into yeah. this film isn't it it's just it feels like it feels like the greatest hits of Bond, but in a, it, but never feels cynical. Never feels like, oh, we're just doing it because you know it, it, it's like, yeah, it just doesn't feel cynical. It feels like they're just everything is again. It's like just bigger, better. Let's. What else yeah. can we do now? What, what, you know, underwater car, right? It's under, let's build an underwater car. We'll have yeah. this scene. We'll have him skiing off the side of a mountain. What else can we do? We're massive sets. We've got submarines. We've got you know, you know, everything in, and it, and it never feels like box ticking. It never feels that way. And the so does England. The pre-title <laughs> sequence, lovely little log, set, log cabin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. very cozy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good with agree. the bunk beds I love that <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love that that there's bunk beds in a James Bond seduction scene <laughs> we've devoured that in our Spyro Love Me review so do listen to that but Moonraker Moonraker well, assuming it's out by now yeah. surely <laughs> So Moonraker was his final James Bond film that he worked on. This was actually, after all, you know, they built the massive 007 stage. Very few scenes were filmed there. It was all in France across, um, yeah. I think, again, this is t- taxation. It's the John Barry uh, <laughs> excuse, but yeah. Not that John so Barry. So only the cable car interiors <laughs> and the space battle exteriors were at Pinewood, but everything else was in France, pretty much. But they were absolutely massive. And this is where... Cubby was losing his patience a bit, I think, with the amount of money that was being spent. <laughs> but it was the biggest box office success. Mm-hmm. So Ken Adam wins again. So presumably, <laughs> presumably his work was uh, well, you know, the big hitters. Yeah, the, the base in the Amazon. So with like yeah. the snake pit, and then the snake, incredible yeah. thing with the sort of screen, the triangular kind of thing, the pyramid. Yeah, 
that you get. And then obviously the space station interior. I mean... <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> Once again, goodness gracious me. So, and the centrifuge, you know, the, the, the oh, thing. Oh, centrifuge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh Just, my <laughs> word. <laughs> Apparently, oh. that, that took eight weeks to build, that the centrifuge. <laughs> and we only filmed there for two days. But he wanted it to look frightening. It's, it is. It is. It absolutely works. And it's it's real. It's that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just. I think uh, the, I can't remember how they filmed it, but the, they did, they put, did they put some like, like air extractors on Roger Moore's face didn't yeah. it, to go, when he's going round and everything. Yeah. But the, when he comes out of it, again, the acting and that, I've never seen anything as believable in my life as that. Mm. He looks totally stunned and lost his balance. And yeah, and she, he looks so angry. She at offers her. some help, but he yeah, he sort of guides yeah. you know, without <laughs> speaking. It's <laughs> <laughs> good acting. I'd I'd really love again if if you're looking at for future Bond films, what bits can we take and you know what can we do? You know, I, I would I would like at some point a um, millionaire billionaire philanthropist who's, who's well so connected and, and everything. A bit, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. probably the last one, but that you know, the, the slightly different. Yeah. I just mean not, you know, Drax, Stromberg, almost Zorro. Yeah, Nutter. Yeah, but then also these these sorts of scenes where Bond is. I'm trying to think what other examples there are where Bond is sort of put in a. Maybe it's a bit too seen as a bit too silly, but you know, there's a reason for him going in. But then a villain does something to to put him in danger. If you know what I mean, mm. rather than you know, you can do a straightforward kind of torture scene but this is you know he doesn't necessarily every everyone doesn't know that not everyone knows that drax is a villain but there's this you know way of trying to sort of kill him and drax does offer the most exaggerated ways of trying to kill him but <laughs> yeah but this one could be seen as an accident that went wrong if you know if, if yeah. you know mm. i'd like i'd like to see something like that in in a new in a new film oh please it's one after another isn't it of ways to kill bond the film pretty much and he makes <laughs> him in all these different scenarios. So. But he says that as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that. I love how knowing yeah. it is. Is that we're just yeah. gonna we, we're just gonna completely reference it. And yeah. All, it. Yeah, too right. Drax is an absolute legend. Vampire. <laughs> yeah. me. You, you mentioned the okay the space station, which is three tier. <laughs> if you think about this as well, this is how important it was to the film. It's it's on the poster campaign. Mm. Mm. It's shown, you know, yeah. but like an artist impression. It's I, just incredible, isn't it? That I will absolutely stand my ground at anybody who says, "Oh, that's a silly one where Bond goes to space," because <laughs> because at the end of the <laughs> day, gone, like, well, the, the thing is, is is that all right? It might sound silly on paper that Bond goes to space, but as we've known from the latest film, it's actually the execution of how something's mm-hmm. done that's more important, and that does not seem silly. When you go to that space station, you feel like you are in a very realistic space station. It works perfectly. Again, Ken Adam for me is the is the hero of Moonraker, along with John Barry actually as well. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Do, do they? I'm just trying to think now. Are there any? Yeah, most of the combination is Ken Barry and uh, John Barry. Sorry, <laughs> Ken Barry, John Ken Adam. Barry, Ken Barry, and John Adam, John Quincy Adams. Yeah. But Spy Love Me, though, isn't, of course, is it? It's Marvin Hamlish. Mm. So I think that must be the only non-John Barry one. Monty Norman. But John Barry was sort of there, yeah. wasn't he? Apparently he built over 50 sets. <laughs> That's why Cubby was losing pay. <laughs> uh, um, 
So yeah, the interior of the Drax pyramid that was in France, and he he deliberately used a shiny coating to make the walls look plastic and false. Hmm. A lot of these sets are aren't sets, sorry. So the incredible interiors of Drax's mansion, they're all real, aren't they? Those mm-hmm. and they oh, they just look beautiful, don't they? Mm-hmm. I know that. That was meant to be in California, babyishly. The, <laughs> the overhead view, when it's like he lifted it, it's pretty pretty barbaric. <laughs> I think for, for for me, my love of Moonraker has just shot through the roof oh, yeah. over the past few years. Into space, yeah, in space. I think it's it's it does everything so well. This is what we set out to do, and this is what it and what it, and it achieves it a hundred percent. You know, there are moments that everyone goes to, oh, well, you know, double-taking, you know, Pigeon and the gondola. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant. But you can't dismiss, <laughs> if you don't, if that doesn't sit well with you, you can't dismiss the rest. You know, like John's saying, and like the, the production is amazing. It is phenomenal. The, the You know, the, the spaceship, everything is so well executed and Absolutely. perfectly realised and feels realistic and believable. And fantastic at the same time that see you know like goosebumps where you get flight in, into space oh, oh coming God. through and the reveal of the state space station that's what i'm talking that's, about that's like bond that's like this is how you present yeah these things and that's that's bigger than and i'm not just meaning this as a diss on on you know towards daniel craig and his films but that's all bigger than than characters almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this it's so huge what we're being shown here and what we're listening to. It's such a huge scale. You're absolutely right with what you're saying and what, you know, John, Ken Adam and John Barry for that film. I mean, what an incredible combination. Mm. Unbelievable. Winning. And people who say about, like, the double-taking pigeon, well... Just go and watch a serious Daniel Craig film and watch uh, Mechanical Eyeballs instead. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to rats. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. The reason I I was um, sort of bursting into laughter, I think think it was Madeline or Jess talked in our Bond Girls episode about, you know, the sort of ridiculousness of Moonraker and it talks about when that guy, you know, when that guy comes out of a coffin and (laughs) (laughs) uses a knife and, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> like a haunted house. Yeah. <laughs> it's rubbish. Not rubbish never mind the bundle. Yeah, how long has he been rubbish. waiting? Yeah, how long has he been waiting in there for? Yeah, and then he gets stabbed. Yeah, he, <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah, he just goes back in his like, box. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, because the, the pigeon is so famous and silly, the dog yeah. doesn't get mentioned. The, mm. the dog st- stop and stare. Yeah, I think it might do, yeah. Richard Lester's version of Superman 2 has more of that sort of stuff <laughs> yeah. than uh, Richard oh, yeah. Donner's. Superman uh, 3. Mm-hmm. Superman 3 has free reign. <laughs> An auteur. Oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> the introduction, Chris Gummer, it's, it's basically just slapstick. Yeah. Like blind guys walking to yeah. paint and oh, it's just, couldn't be done now, but. Unbelievable. No, it is, it is an odd opening, isn't it, for, for yeah. Superman or any superhero <laughs> film? Like people it's carrying planks and paint, yeah. dropping pots, landing on people, <laughs> blind people walking across the road. Yeah. <laughs> the music as well. Yeah. Like, really silly music. <laughs> I get, oh, moon, moon, get back to Moonraker. Yeah. Like the, Links. you know, obviously the, the, the Moonraker itself, the ship that he did. Yes. Basically, he 
take you know it's, this, it's a shuttle which i don't think had flown yet so the, the design was you know available but just kind of makes it his own mm-hmm. the inside you know that sort of the sort of two by two you know noah's ark vibe you know with with the couples looking at each other as the as they head mm. into space it's just yeah it's one of the most enjoyable couple of hours you'll you'll have and it never feels yeah it's like oh it's, it's, that's that, that's a bit silly well how silly is it when you know that woman's eaten by a dog how silly is it when jaws mm. is wandering down that dressed as a clown you oh. know it's like hang on a minute movie, <laughs> and another like, set from ken adam the the gassing of the in the laboratory you know yeah, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> those lovely hexagonal things going yeah, yeah. it's another great <laughs> bit of design that as well isn't it dear me done a review with cinema savvy on moonraker which is a great chance to sort of wax lyrical about that film. We did give Ken Adams some credit, didn't we, John? Yeah. The good thing about that review was we weren't defending it, were we? We were all just yeah. waxing lyrical for two really? hours. Yeah. Who'd have thought that we'd be uh, all waxing lyrical about Moonraker and having to defend the living daylights? It's just, uh, <laughs> what, what, what a world we live in. Oh, and then we missed your eyes only that, that really cost us didn't we because <laughs> absolutely hate that film anyway i'm not, not saying you john would have uh, would have helped the argument too much but well anyway you know but basically i just want to i can't wait to review moonraker because it's just oh, it's a joke how good it is and it was a you math as well who yeah you i put it quite low in your I, I, I had, yeah, seen I had it seen it for ages and then i watched it yeah. again and it was just oh Manner to my, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was just, in the in the wilderness, in the wilderness of the crazy era. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It's just I can't wait to watch it again. I'll be honest, I really oh, can't. Could be a Christmassy one. Yeah, yeah. Just a fun Bond film to watch. Do you find that the the, the public perception of a film can influence? where you rank you know what i mean because it's like oh it's because moonraker is seen as a joke in sometimes in your head you're a bit like oh that's one of the it's one of the shit ones isn't it you know in the same way that people are oh golf oh, people bang on about goldfinger it's like everyone talks about golfing on all the time and how it's like the perfect bond film it sets everything up for the, for the franchise so then you're kind of like oh have I, have I got goldfinger fatigue and then you actually watch it and you think no i don't i could watch this on a loop yeah you know? absolutely yeah all of them, up until a certain point fairly recently, I just I don't really have much bad to say about them. I don't. And I know St- Stephen Carter was saying on our de- one of the debates about No Time to Die that he acknowledges that his, his childhood memories sort of overlook the, the, the bad points of film. Yeah, I, I think like that... You mentioned that about Octopussy, but I think the opposite's happened for me for the Octopussies. I loved it as a kid, but the more, a bit like John, watching it now as an adult, you realise the technical skill involved mm. to to get such a great yeah I, I i do know what he was saying um with that and i, I agree with him you know that you know nost- nostalgia boosts things up in in, mm. in your but the thing that some of the recent ones have done is like more to do with story and character and th- things like that which i don't i can't you know i don't that's not nostalgia that's hiding I, I, do you know what mm. i mean maybe a little ro- you know he's yeah. like the robot in a view to a kill yeah maybe that one little thing but that's not that's not like that's not like Bond die, dying plot. or, you know, Bond and no. um, Blofeld being his brother. And that's, that. you know, those are the things that have... Yeah, but the bionic eye is a plot point. You know, I'm not, I, I don't mind it. But... I understand what he's saying. I totally yeah, yeah, understand yeah. what he's saying. But my issue is, is, is that in 30 years' time, it is highly unlikely that you're going to have people in their mid-30s talking about, well, I really like No Time to Die because I have a nostalgia for that when I was a kid. 
Mm. And that's the difference. Is is mm. that yeah, of course there's loopholes. Of course there's loopholes in in a view to a kill. Of course there's. I mean, I, to be honest, of all the things you want to rag on about, I, it wouldn't be the robotic dog for me. But I, I love that dog. But that's just me. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I like all the like silly the Rocky things. Yeah, exactly. But but I don't think you're going to have a generation growing up who are going to be nostalgic about Daniel Craig films. I just don't think that that's a thing. I think the people who are really pushing the Daniel Craig era are probably more people our age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great point because where can that nostalgia come from? Because you can't catch that on itv during the day wow. you know and you watch the last half an hour it doesn't matter because it's like an exciting you know actually would you as a child you're exposed to these films because they're aimed at, at families but the these new ones aren't so you can't have you because you'd have to be you know a teenager really ideally to obviously there will be kids younger than that watching it but ideally a teenager watching these new bond films so you're already you're not exposed to it yeah. at the prime age where you do attach yeah. it becomes something part of of you and just to you know just linking it to what we're talking about tonight i do think these things play massively into your sort of nostalgia you know when you're a when you're a kid mm-hmm. and you're seeing a volcano base or a mm-hmm. space station or something you you're you're in absolute awe i mean i am in, as an adult but as a kid watching that and it, mm. it you know it really stays with you and you know you have such fondness for it just you know growing up it, it visually it has such an impact on you that you, you can't ever forget it math we we were obsessed as kids with the the bases and you only live twice and spy love me weren't oh we? yeah and it was like the end bat having an end battle and playing as bond in the in the mm. garden or you know with daniel bearer <laughs> With like our fake machine guns and stuff, and it was all built on those sort of images, really. When there's a few of you playing together in the garden, you've got Bond and these other people having like fights and loads going on. I don't know, just yeah, just cap- really capture the imagination. Well, I'm I'm a 33 year old man, and I have my children's car toys still on my wall on my on the side <laughs> of my um, DVD rack, and I've just turned to the side now, and I have got little Nelly. Moonraker and the Diamonds Are Forever Moon Buggy stood next to each mm. other, and it is only tonight I have just realised that all three of those are the brainchilds of Ken Adam. Yeah, and it's that's the legacy. It's, it's, ma- it's magic. It's, it's magic. It is. It's it, and and it it does make me feel sad about people coming to the to whose introduction to the Bond franchise is through where it is at the moment. Because you, because you, you can't be, because you have to be of a certain age and a certain out, you know, have a certain outlook, and you know, you have to go and find that. You know, you might stumble across it, you know, on stream. Well, at the moment, you can't find it on streaming, but obviously, that might change with, with Amazon and stuff. But I just think that you come at it through there, and there's not. It's like who, who you will never see because children can't see Daniel Craig's films because the two grown up essentially or too violent or too adult that you can't those no one they can't recreate it it's like what are you gonna recreate <laughs> you know, get his balls smacked you know what i mean well kids <laughs> can do that because because the original fran the original franchise the original series was it, it was aimed at adults and children and family it tried to in, in you know uh, 
appeal to everyone, but it was never a kid's film. It never taught down to the audience. It was, you know, you, they were like great, and I think that were like all great films in the same way that something like, you know, like The Simpsons was or, you know, uh, Toy Story. It, it, there's something for everyone in that. It pitched, you know, there's, there's comedy, there's references for adults to get, but essentially it's really great storytelling. And that will engage everyone of all ages, adults, children. There's something for everyone's sets. You know, the idea that how many kids running around, like you say, in the garden, you know, pretending you're, you know, attacking a base. There's none of that in, 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 in the new series. And you're not going to have that because if you're running around the garden and you're like 16, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it, this, it, it's, it's just not the same, isn't it? And that, that kind of makes me feel a little bit sad. I know it's not to say that kids can't, what like my son dresses up as James Bond because I've introduced him to things like Moonraker. Yeah, if you've not if you're not introduced to it at that, it, it, I don't know. It's yeah. just, I don't know. Remember. You just want to run around the poison garden. May, well, <laughs> maybe I was just thinking. You know, maybe if at the end of I mean I'm spitballing here. So if as we I think we might have discussed if it had been that Safin had taken over Spectre or something like that. And then he had all, you know, loads of agents, loads of villains, which I know he, he does have mercenaries. Like Newcastle United. But, <laughs> yeah, well, his base. And then say Nomi had led a number of agents, you know, to come and come and attack, you know, yeah. while Bond was already there or something. And, mm. you know, there was a battle like that. At the, I'd, I'd have loved to have seen something like that. Yeah. Not I'd to start, <laughs> but we know why that wouldn't have happened because Mr. Craig needs to have the most amount of screen time. You can't cut to other double O agents or MI6 agents attacking, you know, the base. It has to be about him, his personal journey, yeah. his personal, you know. And, and he, it is a shame because that is a really great idea and I would have loved to that because that's, that's a traditional yeah. Bond trope, isn't it, is that you have a battle and it's not just Bond often there is other people in that like even goldfinger there's a whole army out there fighting while he's yeah. getting his own little you know overcoming his own obstacles yeah, no me but there's no other <laughs> no i know i thought why didn't no. you go with loads of them That's what yeah i don't know but no i just yeah. meant in terms of you know it being that sort of traditional mm. you know yeah. big big what do you mean great layer yeah. and you know a, a sort of those are good Soldiers and loads of bad, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Oh, brilliant! It's babies, it's but it, yeah. yeah, but it works. Uh, yeah, the Ken Barry legacy. Ken Barry. Was- <laughs> <laughs> again, sorry. Is, he, is Ken Barry? Is he a real person or <laughs> Ken, no. Ken Barry? Let, Let me just Google Ken Barry. I'll <laughs> find him on Facebook for you. Ken Barry. He's an American an actor. actor. <laughs> Who died in 2018. He starred in F Troop, The Andy Griffith Show, Mayberry RFD, and Mama's Family. So there we go. Oh, Ken. Not Superman 3. Yeah. And there's Ken, Ken Barry with an IE, did the voice of yeah. Yeah. Bosman Pat. Oh, right. All <laughs> right. That'll be it. Brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Ken Adam. He did get a knighthood in 2003. A bit like John Barry, get the names right, not the production designer, the composer. He he got lots of awards. You know, he won two Oscars, which were for, as we said, The Banners of King George and Barry Lyndon. John Barry won five Oscars, but none of them were for the Bond, work on the Bond films. Because it's just sort of seen, I think mm. he said, I think uh, Spy Love Me got nominated for an Oscar for his mm. production design, but that was it. And I think he just said, well, they just don't really see it as a serious film, do they? So... Even though the sets are much more elaborate than 
nearly every other film, aren't they? So, I mean, what the BAFTAs were, were kinder to him. He did. He got nominated for four Bond films, which were Goldfinger, Thunderball, Yomi the Twice, and The Spy Love Me. So they're a bit nicer. But I, I don't know how often you hear the recent ones getting nominated, do they, for production design? Maybe, they, maybe a couple of them have done, but. Yeah, but the, the the music's gone much better because they keep getting uh, songs nominated now, so they're much improved in that area, apparently. If Billy Eilish doesn't win an Oscar, something's gone wrong, doesn't it? Seriously wrong. Oh. <laughs> well. The score! Was it Skyfall was nominated for an Oscar? Yeah, it was. Jeez. Anyway, to close on the, the Ken Adam chapter, what a guy. It is, you're absolutely right, just talking about it more and more tonight, you appreciate more and more the things he's done the legacy he's left mm. us and let's hope they can lean a bit more on that in the future people a lot of all the composers seem to sort of say yeah we'd like to go back to the John Barry and they all say that don't they but you don't really hear much oh I want that fantastical Ken Adam look again I was going for that like a director it'd be nice if a director said something like that once mm. it got got mm. them on board to do that who knows what we'll see in the in the future but I'm so glad we've 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 given this chap his uh, his due because and we do on every episode that his, we've done it on The Spy Love Me, of course. Time is off forever, but we will do it on his f- future films that we're t- yet to review. Could take years, but <laughs> thank you guys for joining me. And I think it's been a, a cracking look at an amazing gentleman. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.